Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by my new book, Recovery. Pre-order your copy by going to russellbrand.com. And also this. Named for the late comedy great, the Harold Ramis Film School at the Second City Training Centre in Chicago is now accepting applications for their year-long programme. Want to study at the very first film school in the world dedicated entirely to comedic storytelling? Yeah. Get invaluable insight and access from Hollywood vets? Oh, I do. They're looking for applicants of all experience levels and backgrounds. I'm going to go. So go to ramisfilmschool.com or call 312-664-3959 to find out more. Now it's time for Under the Skin. This is a very special edition of Under the Skin because I'm not even hosting it. I am the guest. This week, Under the Skin will be hosted by the great Welsh philosopher, the Dylan of emergent new consciousness. It is Brad Evans. And what this man doesn't know about violence isn't worth knowing. And I should, I should, I'll lacerate myself and kick my own head in before I deny his knowledge of the subject of violence. With, the, uh, with my book coming out, uh, Brad has kindly agreed to interview me on the subject of recovery. Brad, I admire you very much as a philosopher. Over the course of, these, uh, uh, of this excursion into the subcutaneous world, we have become friends and I'm very grateful for you doing this. I will now hand over full authority to you. And bow well, as I do. Yeah, like I'd like to begin by saying I've obviously read an advanced copy of your book, and it was actually a real privilege to read it. And I was actually taken by a lot of the courage that you put down on the pages. So that to me is something to be deeply applauded. Now, the one thing I guess you know, I'm also I guess kind of humbled that you actually show trust in me to do this. So, so thank you, and thank you for our friendship. That's something worth you know cherishing um i'd like to go you know directly into this question as i say it's kind of you know it's interesting being on the other side of this and the one thing that which i kind of think about you know is that for anybody who writes a book they know that it's a whole series of procrastinations sometimes it takes months often it takes years and i guess the first thing that really struck me was what compelled you to write this book at this particular point in your life I felt that anybody that's in recovery <clears throat> has this experience where what begins as something that you're using to tackle a particular addiction, <clears throat> in my case initially, crack and heroin, becomes sort of over time, Like I realised that the tools and techniques I was using to one day at a time not use drugs and alcohol were becoming utilised in every area of my life. The way that I feel about sex, the way that I feel about food, all behaviour and all forms of attachment can be tackled, or at least my perception of them can be altered by working the 12 steps. <clears throat> so, excuse me, coffee, mate. But so what I felt was like this, um, like at this point in my life where I feel like I've gone through so many layers of disillusionment, disillusionment with uh, fame, disillusionment with Hollywood, disillusionment with sex. And disillusionment is, I think, by and large, a bloody good thing. Who wants to be illusioned you know like <laughs> so you know and like so I felt like you know the the 
recovery is the lens through which I live my life. It's that my relationship is c- conducted through the, the program that I describe in this book. Obviously, my spiritual development, the way that I relate to other people. I by no means do it perfectly, but it's a technique that make that's so effective that I want to expound it because I've seen it change lives of people with really serious chemical dependency, really serious behavioural problems. And I think it's a technique that offers us a kind of counterweight to the overriding uh, ideology of our time, which seems to me to be a kind of determined and and yet unconscious Mm self-centredness. Yeah, and I think, you know, when I was reading the manuscript and this call for transformation really comes through there and you you can see there's a very personal journey that you go on, um, I I guess I was trying to figure out... um, what type of book it actually was. And I know this is bloody ironic coming from a so-called postmodernist, right, that I was trying mm-hmm. to label it and classify it. And I think, you know, in an affirmative way, it's, it's almost like an anti-self-help book. And I think what I try to mean by this is that I think the central message which really jumps off the pages is that it's precisely these kind of traits of a self-centred, individualistic kind of fuck-the-world narrative and all its kind of loving sentiments, which kind of gets us into this fix in the first place, mm. this kind of just help-yourself <laughs> narrative. And I think what really, to me, comes out of this is more about a sober and perhaps more truthful cry for human connection. Is that where you see the hope for the book? Yes, because I think our culture and our biochemistry collude to create a kind of chronic individualism and I feel that the natural conclusion of uh, a kind of a a secular rejection of the mystical leads us to the conclusion that we are just individuals we're here to survive we're here to fulfill our impulses in the original 12-step literature it says like we have no argument with those people that say perhaps man's purpose is simply to fulfill these biochem- biochemical drives, to procreate, to survive, to dominate the selfish gene approach. But he says one thing we are certain of is no one has made a worse mess of this way of life than we that suffer from alcoholism and addiction. And like me, when I try to live my life as a means to find personal fulfilment, I get into sort of a kind of peculiar despair. I start to feel lonely, I start to feel disconnected. That don't mean I don't pick up the cudgel once again and try to find my way back to false profits. Why I feel qualified to write a book on addiction is because I've been addicted to heroin, I've been addicted to crack, I've been addicted to fame, money, sex, uh, relationships, other people's approval. I see this phenomena emerge again and again. And I'm starting to think that... The label of addiction in itself is too confining, that actually this is the human condition in motion, yearning itself, yearning. And we live in a culture, I think, that uses as its fuel this will to acquire. You know, like, I I thought it's become... The reason I wrote the book is because it seems to me that simple though this is, and particular though it is in origin, entailed within it are tools that could change people's perspective in quite a profound way. And what you say there, Brad, about it takes you from a point of view of going, oh, if only I can get this, when I get that, I'll be cool, or if that person understood me, or if I could have sex with that person, or if I could get those shoes, all of these being personal examples from my own life. Like... Everyone will be okay, and it doesn't work. But if I go, like, you know, and I don't do it enough because I'm 
again, I, every day I wake up once again bewitched and hypnotised by individualism. But when I go and spend time helping other people, sometimes in real blatant sub-Princess Diana ways, like going to a homeless shelter and getting proper hands-on and being amongst it, or if just on a basic communal way, like we human beings should be, taking phone calls from other people that are suffering, reaching out and talking about their problems for a change, which... You know, it's odd that it needed to be formatted for me to understand it because I'm sure a lot of people just bloody do it naturally. But it just gives me a different way of talking to my mates. If my mates are going through relationship struggles or personal struggles or work struggles, I think, oh, right, well, this is good because I can connect to you here. And while I'm talking to you, I won't be thinking about myself and my own problems. And the more I do it, you know, I think, you know, like in Christianity, Brad, I'd, I want to know what you think about all this stuff, man. Like when it talks like when Christ says, it get down with the poor, you know, like that's where it's at. You know, it's not like, oh, my God, Look at their scars and lesions. It's like there's some energy there when you're helping others. And the kind, and not only that, the other people that help others are mm. beautiful. Mm. So you start to feel a kind of elevated mm. sense of connection, purpose, meaning. All of these words that are, I think, being increasingly marginalised, empathy, all these things that are being excluded from the sort of political ideologies of our time and the social ideologies of our time suddenly become accessible through the most basic things. Mm. Yeah, and there's an interesting point in terms of, you know, I think we can all kind of know in our lives when human connections seem deeply meaningful to us, right? And we know that these connections exist and we thrive on them and we know that they're kind of really reciprocal because they're based on an ethical understanding and, and an idea of love with one another. But we're often driven, actually, to relationships, where, which, as you say, we're trying to seek affirmation in the wrong places and they become very toxic and they become... And sometimes society can actually promote those types of relationships, yeah. which we know are actually deeply, you know, detrimental to ourselves, mm. to our emotional well-being, to our intellect intellectual well-being and yet we still strive for them and and even though we know they are completely empty meaningless mm. or indeed maybe nihilistic in terms of our own sense of self and i think that's possibly yeah. romanticism you know i'm mm. not saying that romanticism mm. is a mendacious idea but the, the the notion that you can find fulfillment by being with some aspirational figure some deity some living goddess your own personal jesus i'll find salvation if i find the one you know that that idea i think is highly prevalent but mm. even more toxic than this i think is the commodification of relationships that, that happens on quite as I say, it's a collusion between biochemistry and culture. Like, it's very natural, I think, on some level to meet a man and think, what can this man do for me? Can mm. he serve me? Can he make me feel better? Can I make money? Is he going to be a good ally in a fight? What can I do with it? Or in my case with women, do I want to have sexual intercourse with that woman? Is this person going to make me feel better about myself? This is the modification and the objectification. It happens, you know, in my case, it happened quite, quite automatically. I mm. have to work to not approach relationship in that way mm -hmm. so so for me the program is the antidote to the type of thinking to which i have a tendency that's all addiction mm. is is a tendency mm. left on my own i will go that way mm. unless i intervene mm. unless there is a program and the other thing brad i think is it seems to me to be important is we don't choose between a program and no program we have a programme. You have the programme of your family. You have the programme of your society. You have the programme of your culture. You have the programme of consumerism. If you don't undo that programme, if you do not decode yourself like someone leaving a cult, then that's the programme you're living with. The programme of I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough unless I get this object or that object. I won't be good enough unless that person can accept me. Now, what I think this offers, because it was designed to tackle alcoholism and addiction, is a way of untangling the strands that web us to material 
materialism, consumerism and objectification and individualism. All these things that are based on the idea that what can be measured, what can be weighed is what is important. Mm -hmm. See, like, my... Um, it's not like I... I'm anti-atheist in any kind of, you know, I know loads of people that are atheists, probably you, like that are fantastic and incredibly smart and compassionate and wonderful people. My concern is that there's a thread within atheism that tells you that all the only thing that matters is that which can be ascertained. And, and science in, in, in all of its main disciplines is forever peripheral, forever on the brink of new discoveries. And when you get someone like Elon Musk saying, by like you know, look, with the kind of virtual reality technologies we have now, there's no way of proving that we're not all currently living in a virtual reality. And I had a go on my mate's virtual reality thing, my little mate Ezra, he's only 11 years old, and I thought, oh, my God, you can be immersed now in a totally a totally different reality. So Elon Musk saying, if we can do that, imagine what other cultures could conceivably do. You can't rule out the possibility that this is one. Well, bloody hell... That's what it says in the Bhagavad Gita, except it doesn't use the word computer. You know, like, what is it that you want? You know, now we're saying, yes, the material world is an illusion that's, like, it's transmitted into your consciousness through the senses. You reconfigure it and, you inf and, and the inflections of your culture denote what meaning you attribute to the external stimuli. Now, the only way of decoding that, I think, well, not the only way, but a way of decoding that is by, in personal, in personal crisis, you get the opportunity to reevaluate that crisis. It could be divorce, it could be drug addiction, it could be a heartbreak or some other existential crisis. But when you're at that point, whether as an individual or as a society, you can say, is this the kind of life I want to believe, uh, that I want to live? Do I believe it could be different? Am I willing to accept help? Once you take those are the first three steps. Once you take those three steps, it's possible to have transformation. After that, there's a process of inventorying, a willingness to change, and then a, a, a devotion to conscious contact and to service. And then you've got a completely different way of looking at the world. Yeah, I think this, you know, this re-evaluation is, you know, it's, it's an, it, it strikes me as a really important thing, but it's also a very difficult thing, right, to start to re-evaluate everything about your own sense of self, your sense of behaviour. You know, it's often easier to project your troubles onto other people rather than actually saying, actually, is this something about my own self which I need to, you know, what? how am I shamefully compromising with power in a way that's affecting my own relationships or the way I'm objectifying things, deification and so on. But I wanted to bring this on to the, 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 point, the step that you said, you know, because I think... When I was reading the book, the first kind of couple of chapters was kind of like, yeah, I can go with this, right? It's kind of, you know, there's, there's this step around, okay, admit you have a problem, then go and speak with somebody. Then you go into this section, now what you need to do is write an inventory of all the things which really piss you off, right? And then I go, whoa, wait a minute, right? This is where it's starting to get challenging, right? And it's going to start to get difficult. Mm. And you, you even say those words at the beginning. You say, look, you know, this is not easy, right? This is difficult. And... And you talk about, you know, the, let's write down all those things which you think create a, you know, an assault on your sense of selfhood, on your sense of dignity. Mm. And, you know, and the phrase you actually use here is the uncomfortable confrontations, right? So deal with this uncomfortable confrontations in your life. And I was wondering, how did you actually feel, of course, from writing the book? Because in many senses, you must have had to revisit a lot of uncomfortable confrontations, which you had already might have kind of dealt with. But in writing the book, there was almost like an attempt to kind of revisit those issues. And, you know, how, how did you feel writing this book? Because of the efficacy of the programme, Brad, it did not feel like the resurrection of the cadavers of my past because they have been buried and even in exhuming them this metaphor is going well for the purposes of the for the purpose of the book like uh, it didn't 
they, they, they don't bring them back to life. Now, like, you know, sort of, I have a propensity to return to states of shame, you know, I, like that I have that in me. It's easily triggered in me. It's easily triggered. Like, leading up to my wedding, like, because I think, like, this is the way I sort of have been explaining this, you might like it, right? My mate Matt Morgan, he said to me, his kid was climbing up saying hi. He went, don't climb up there, it's your fall and your head will smash open like an egg. Right, and ever since Matt said that, a little boy coming keeps going, oh no, my head will smash like an egg. Matt said the image is too lurid for the child to bear a handle, you know, like it's too potent an image. Right, so me, getting married, like I don't think oh, I'm getting married in the morning, like Stan Holloway, I think, well, what is marriage? Marriage is a ceremony. This is a ritual. This is about the relinquishing of the ego. This is about coming together and making a vow to become a different man and to live in alignment with new principles. So on because I'm looking at what what you know or inadvertently or accidentally with not consciously but somehow actually looking at what is the meaning of a marriage it induces a state in me that's the point of ritual to induce a particular state now, uh, Meredith says my friend Meredith she goes uh, people think that religion is about the text it is about the ritual it doesn't matter if you can't understand the Latin mass better to just hear a lot of babbling and sort of think what is this guy talking about you know like <laughs> which I'm sure some people identify with right now. <laughs> Like, you know, it's like the ritual induced the state in me. The fear was so terrible. The fear was so terrible, Brad. I thought, what am I going to do? And I had to use this program to cope with the level of fear I felt about getting married the next day. Not any fear about marrying my wife, because I really want to and really wanted to. But something about that ritual, that ceremony, it meant something. It wasn't nothing. It wasn't, oh, it's only a bit of paper. So turn up a church and then a party. No, 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 my friends. There is the unseen. There is the invisible. There were, there were, something happened to me and I had to surrender 100%. I had to surrender. I said, what is this fear trying to tell me? What does the fear want? The fear is communicating. The fear is talking to me from my own biochemistry, from my own body, from my own consciousness. A message, a powerful message is being said, sent. And if I don't listen to it, something bad is going to happen to me. I surrendered. I surrendered wholeheartedly. And every time I do that, my life improves. New states of consciousness are achieved through the surrendering of these biochemical circuits that somehow contain us, these neurological loops that we allow to encircle us and tether us to low states of consciousness. I think you know. Mm. Oh, right. <laughs> no, no, I'm. I was thinking I'm, that yesterday on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm taking yeah, this new state of consciousness, and I. But I want to connect it back to a question of philosophy because um, you know the trouble is with us bloody critical theories is we can't read any book without actually looking for the political and philosophical implications, Ooh, right? Go on. So you know, like you know, I'll read Alice in Wonderland and go, "This is the best bloody book of political theory ever written," right? But often we read books, and actually, most a lot of them are just devoid of any significant philosophical significance or implications. In other words, they don't force you to think about a problem differently, right? Now, the one thing which I admired about the book was it's it actually has a very deep political philosophical, uh, philosophical architecture to it. And the one thing which I was kind of struck with the book and what I was kind of excited when I was reading with is is when you talk about this attempt to connect, about connection, you also link it to the question, of course, you know, life is very fleeting, life is short, and we need to find these connections and a meaningful existence. And I think what the book really kind of finds almost like a rescue in, for me, is an attempt to introduce something of the substantive over the superficial. And the substantive for you is spiritual. And I was wondering how you can kind of maybe, ref, you know, talk maybe a bit more about that. You know, what is it about the spiritual that is substantive for you in terms of 
dealing precisely with maybe the philosophy of the book. What is substantial about the spiritual to me is its efficacy. It works. When I do these things, I feel better. When I am kind, when I am loving, when I surrender, I feel better. Now, these things can't be measured, mechanised or monetized, but they are in in fact effective. There is some truth in them that is difficult to hmm, legislate or iterate. So that's why it works for me. And I think perhaps the reason that this programme is so good is I didn't invent it. It was invented or constructed by someone else. Like, you know, in the 1930s in America, a chronic alcoholic, Bill Wilson, who after like an incredible sort of an epic drinking binge, the the type which had defined his life, had what he described as an epiphany. And I believe epiphany to be the revelation of essence, the previously concealed revelation of essence. Why do I feel this way? What's going on? Suddenly, you know why. And... Bill Wilson has this epiphany and realises that he will never be able to be free from drink and the problems that result from it unless he helps other people to not... He realises, one, he can never drink again one day at a time. Two, he's going to have to help other people that have the same problem in order to achieve this state and sets about it immediately. First of all, troubling drunks in New York, going up to people in bars, going, let me help you, let me help you, and then predictably saying, no, get off, (laughs) leave me alone. Then eventually he has this sort of a program, uh, an experience which in the myth of the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous is the significant moment, the uh, defining moment, the conception, I suppose. He's in um, Akron, Ohio, for a business appointment, and it comes on him. He's in the hotel that he's staying at, and he sees the bar, and he hears the music, and he's tempted to go in. But adjacent to the entrance to the door is a public telephone. This is the 1930s, remember? And uh, he takes a chance and he rings up and he calls up a local priest and says, look, have you got anyone, or a doctor maybe he calls, like, uh, have you got anyone, he, call, he calls a priest, have you got anyone in this area that's been coming in going, I'm a terrible drunk, help me, help me? And that guy goes, yeah, we have. He goes, can you put me in touch with that guy because I need some serious help, like, and I want to help him. And he goes, oh, yeah, this guy needs a few more phone calls here and there as they make the connection, but eventually ends up with um, uh, Dr. Bob, the other founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, goes around his ass and he says to this guy, listen, I've got this problem. I'm unable to stop drinking once I start. It's ruining my life. I ruin all my relationships. All my job opportunities fall apart. It's destroying me. He explains to him his condition. The other guy starts talking about his problems. The two of them having initially, like, the, the apparently the Dr. Bob guy was like, you know, I'm only going to tell him, like he told his secretary, come get this guy after 10 minutes, okay? It seems a bit weird. I'm getting phone calls out of blue when people want to talk about booze. They end up talking for hours and hours and hours. They recognised at the end of the four hours that neither of them had wanted to drink during that whole time because the alcohol is not the problem. Alcohol is the solution to the problem of living under the false ideals of a materialistic society. People are looking for something. They're looking for connection. Some people just can't live without that connection, so they find another solution to living without the connection. Booze, drugs, sex gambling and i think we're all on the scale somewhere all of us are one way or another trying to come up with it they're very like a couple of days later the two of them they start going to hospitals troubling other people oh, there are people here that are here from because of like alcohol related problems yeah that dude over in that bed he's been a pain in the ass all night you can hear him shouting from behind the curtain and like the two of them go over there hit him up and suddenly you know this this is you know as you know a lot more than me brad within like historical terms this is only the 1930s we're in 2017 now this thing grows and grows and grows people realize oh my god this works it works now the 
It's written in the Christian language of the time. It's written in the patriarchal terminology of the time. It's also understandably protective of its identity. The anonymity is to make sure that AA as a thing is protected and that no one person, certainly not me, can say, hey, I'm Mr. AA because I know that I'm really still crazy. I could drink or take drugs. Mm. Tomorrow something happens, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm certainly, you know, as I make clear in the book, it's not written from a position of authority. It's written from a position of experience. Like, I don't know better than anybody. Like, I don't know what crazy things I'm going to do. I just, but I know that if I work this program, I'll be all right. If I work this program, I'll be all right. The only problems start for me when I go, I think I'll take control of this situation and start because me then, ego, desire, pleasure, fear, rage, the other program steps back in. So the reason the spirit is important because it's the only thing that can transcend the material. It's the only thing that can house it. It is the crucible of the material world. What is consciousness? Where did it come from? What the fucking hell is going on, Brad? <laughs> like, and for me, this very simple tool gives us access to consciousness in a way that we will not attain if we live in accordance with our biochemical drives and a culture that uses it to turn us into passive consumers. Yeah. I think you can connect this to the politics of the times in terms of, you know, on the one hand, you know, we're constantly told that nobody's in control, right? So we have to accept insecurity, vulnerability. And that can lead to a lot of people being anxious. But what you seem to be saying is actually letting go of this very ridiculous idea that we can be in control of other people's behaviours, other people's lives, like bloody North Korea this morning. If we dwell on these things, then we're going to live in a basically, you know, in this constant state of anxiety about things we can't possibly deal with. And I think that's kind of... And how do we seek some kind of affirmation out of this? Well, maybe to, to turn to, as you say, a different sense of the consciousness might be the alternative to that. But I want to come back to your story about, you know, this question of confiding, because the example you talk about, you know, these two guys who speak in... And, of course, they're, they are confiding in one another. Yeah. And that idea of, of to confide in one another, of course, re requires confidence, right? To confide requires confidence. Mm. You need to have the confidence to confide in somebody... And you, it might be a random stranger, but at least you have an established trust around this kind of sense of, you know, of the confidence. And there's a particular passage I want to read from the book. Um, not only, I think, because it brought a tear to my eye, and I don't want to shatter any illusions people have of me. I do have emotions every now and again. Um, you don't seem like it. Yeah. I did an episode of The Truths <laughs> on Suicide, and you, it was like you were reading the side of a tin of beams. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no, you're very emotional. <laughs> I'm but, but also because, you know, I think it really addresses what's at stake here, and this kind of, you know, it says, you know, suddenly my fraught and frightened childhood became reasonable and soothed. My mum was doing her best, and so was my dad. Yes, people made mistakes, but that's what humans do. And I am under no obligation to hoard these errors and allow them to clutter my perception of the present. Yes, it is wrong that I was abused as a child, but there is no reason for me to relive it, consciously or unconsciously, in a way that I conduct my adult relationship. My perceptions of reality, even my own memories, are not objective or absolute. They are biased and they can be altered. Now, this to me is a really powerful passage in the book, because what you're talking about is not only can we sometimes, you know, decide and we do have a choice around you to you talk about the things that we hoard and carry along with us. I'm not saying that we can ever forget them or we can outlive them, but we can choose whether they define our lives or not. And the, the central message, which I think comes out of this is a very positive message, is if you do confine in others, that's where the transformative potential 
happens. You cannot tr simply trans wake up one day and say, I'm going to be an entirely new subjectivity. Right? <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen that way because in order to change your behavior, you need to change your behavior in the eyes of others, right? We are human, you know, we're not human beings, we're human becomings, right? We're always connecting to people and disconnecting and reconnecting. And in that sense, it requires a certain, you know, confidence to transform and I'm wondering what you you think about it in terms I of your experiences I think you're right Brad mm. one of the things that recurs lately since Yanis Varoufakis said it on this podcast was you know we exist in dialectic what is like you know seal me in a pod and shoot me into space like and you know what am I what am I without or as Jarvis Cocker put it more simply without people we are nothing you know like mm. so like yeah, you're quite right that it is a collective and communal activity. This book, you could learn, you could read it on your own, you could do the programme on your own, but primarily it's about how you relate to yourself and how you relate to other people. And uh, the passage that you read from my book, just to clarify, the abuse happened outside of my family. And you're, the thing that I think is important about um, you know, the, the, my stance, that you can one can alter the perception of the past, and if you alter your perception of the past, you alter the present, is that, there, yeah, as I said there, there is no objective reality, but you're right, this is going to be a state that's difficult to achieve just sat in your room. You can't just say that to yourself. It has to be realised in relationship, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to connect this then, now then, to the social implications of the project. Now, you've already talked about, you know, you see kind of addiction as um, something which is not just an individual pathology, but it's a social construct, right? We, you know, society gives you these certain values and those values in many ways play to the human desires in a way which lend themselves to addictive personalities. And actually we're taught to desire the very things which could bring us back down to our, you know, on our knees. And there's something about the tabloid press in Britain which is kind of revealing of this, you know. We like nothing more than the celebrity who falls, right? Because it's almost like this, that's not the system failing, it's working all too well, right? Because we kind of expect this, right? We want this to kind of happen. And, you know, but I want to kind of connect it also to your other work on... And, and I think, you know, some of the other powerful work and advocacy work you've done on the war on drugs and linking this question of addiction to drugs. Now, as we know, historically, the war on drugs has been kind of separated between almost like a war legal paradigm versus a health development paradigm. Now, I think, you know, the shift towards seeing it as a health problem is a positive shift away from the war paradigm. But too often when we shift it then to the health paradigm, it invariably retreats back into individual pathology, right? It's the person who's just simply at fault because, you know, they've fallen through the cracks or whatever else. And I think what your book is also trying to do is add another layer onto this and say, yes, you know, addiction is a health problem. It's a mental health problem. But unless we understand the social consequences and the social effects which give rise to this problem and constantly feed it, then we will not gain a real tangible purchase on this. And, you know... It, I wonder what your thoughts are on this, because this, to me, I find is really important in terms of really pushing the debate forward on addiction and the war on drugs more generally and my question of violence and everything else which follows. The criminalisation of drugs is a useful social tool in the management of populations, and this has been explored in films like 13th and The House I Live In, brilliant films on uh, how the criminalisation of drugs allows you to criminalise uh, 
portions of the population, a you know, form of necropolitics, creating new eco- economies, new opportunities for social management and social engineering, particularly in the United States, that economically requires slavery in some form to sustain itself. The, the, the health model, you're right. That's a, I hadn't really thought of that, of the, the implications of, of a health model as a determinant means that individual pathology is... The, is suddenly the defining contributor to the condition. There is clearly a relationship, like uh, Johan Hari's written about addiction, and he, like the example he cites is Rat Park, where you know rats that were kept in conditions like the, you know, like because <laughs> it's interesting. You'll love this as a, a postmodernist, dear Brad. That there's the assumption of what normal is in in laboratory conditions. They 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 with unthinkingly uh, have this is normal, and they put rats in cages and go look at these rats. They much prefer the water bottle that's full of crack cocaine than normal water. And, and then someone pointed out, hold on a minute, it's probably horrible in that cage. <laughs> and then someone, all right, let's give them a nice cage then with all you know good shit to do. And they stop taking crack curiously enough. So you know there, there is undoubtedly. Like addiction can affect anybody, but you know, particularly chemical dependency. But it is certainly exacerbated by economic depravity. But there are different forms of depravity, also emotional depravity. Is like it's not a condition that the the sort of the the economically deprived people have uh, exclusively control of. Although it'd be nice for them to have exclusive control of something, um, but. Its effects are felt more there. If you can't get into treatment, if you can't afford to address it, it is more likely that, you know, I mean, you're criminalised from the get-go. You're already a criminal. So now is what degree of criminality is it that you're going to cop for? When I went to that, um, I went on a police raid in West London once and it was like, you know, it was it was a very revelatory experience for me, Brad, because like they battered the door in of what was a crack house. Like, you know, even the term crack house, once I got like even me as a person that's been crack houses, I'd never really sort of questioned the idea that that's just an house. <laughs> like it's not really a crack house. And you went in like you went in there and but what dwelt within the crack house was not monsters. It was like booting down the door of a leukemia ward. Thin, emaciated broken people slumped pale in a chair denied sunlight of every variety spiritual and literal just holding their lives together with drugs and that it's interestingly circular that this program on an individual level takes you from self-obsession and narcissism and deposits you at a point of service and kindness because that is precisely the program that's required on a social level that if we have an inclusive, empathetic, loving society, that that necessarily you you include people. It would become a more inclusive society. I think this model of sacrifice that exists within Christianity, the the the, the sacrificed God, uh, for me, I apply it in my life whenever I see. Suffering, I think that guy's homeless, so I don't have to be. A mate of mine got his leg amputated recently, and he is a person who works this program. He, like I met him at a sort of a conference for drug addicts. <laughs> it was very badly organised, and uh, and he was on crutches. And like, I go, oh, you right, mate? I'd only met him once before. You know, I thought he was a nice guy, but I didn't know him that well. You all right? He's called Pete. I go, you all right, mate? 
He goes, oh, yeah. I go, what's with the crutches? You know, expecting, oh, you know, I tripped, I broke my ankle, some sort of minor interest story. And he goes, uh, I've got cancer. I'm having my leg amputated at the knee. I went, fucking hell, bloody hell. And he goes, no, 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 I'm good. I want to live. I want to be clean. And I sort of like some wave hit me of like the truth of what he was saying and the beauty. So I thought, i got to learn about this person. I got his number, stayed in touch with him. The week leading up to the amputation, he's fine. The night before the amputation, he's fine. Throughout the amputation, I speak to him the next day, he's on a, on a bed, admittedly on opiates because of the nature of the pain medication. He was blissfully happy and he continues to be because with this programme, this is a programme that is effective. He transcends the material condition and just says, well, my leg is being amputated. I can't control that but I can control my reaction to my leg being amputated. And I think about this, I can't get it, obviously, out of my head. How is this guy managing this? How is he doing it? Because he's not putting it on. I'm talking to him every day. All right, Ross, I'm just doing this thing. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm recording another thing today. So sort of, he's happy. And the reason is, is because he's accepted it, he's surrendered it, he's working this programme and he's getting on with his life. He's not gone, now I will be defined by this problem. And that's... Mm. Unbelievable. That's unbelievable to me that it's that powerful and it's that effective. Now, he does this again, as we say, in communion, in conversation. So it works on an individual level. But you're quite right, Brad. It's not something that we should ascribe to individual pathology because where are these bloody boundaries? What do you mean Mm. an individual? We're all made of the same stuff. We're all thinking the same thoughts. We're all feeling the same Mm. feelings other than the variety provided by cultural inflection and social conditions. We're all basically basically the same Mm. so like if we have systems that encourage empathy if we have systems that emphasize the corollary and connection between us then we will build a better society yeah and i want to push you on the the title um which is recovery and i think you know you could offer almost like a simplistic reductive reading of the title which is almost like you know how can you kind of go back to a previous better self, right? So how do I recover myself? It's almost like the George Best question, right? Where does it all go wrong in your life, right? And then if you can pinpoint this, but as, we, as you say, you know, for a lot of people who are in this condition, it's the social forces, the complex social forces. There is no pinpointable moment in somebody's life where you can say this is kind of where it all goes wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think the way I understand and the way you're using the term recovery also is also a critique of the idea that we can live a perfectible life. And one of the striking things which comes out for me of this is kind of a humility with what you're talking about is, you know, on the one hand, not only not to take yourself too seriously, although we, you know, we have to deal with serious issues in the world, but also this idea that it's okay not to be okay sometimes. And to admit this is no bad thing. That's true. And this is something, again, that I've only really found in uh, within spiritual conversations and spiritual not doctrine that ain't the right word but it's like for me this has always been framed spiritually like when I talked to Sharon Salzberg on this podcast she said that when you're meditating it's normal that you start thinking all the time you don't punish yourself for that you just return to the mantra or return to the breath you accept fallibility as part of the part of the equation of your humanity that you to a degree relinquish the idea of perfection but sort of somewhat paradoxically i suppose brad that, that, that one of the meanings or implications of the term recovery is that you recover the person you're supposed to be supposed to be in inverted commas i suppose but meaning that a natural biochemical entity such as a human being or a tree does have in it a code 
it has an intention, it will grow a certain way if unimpeded by, in our case, social, cultural, personal and familial conditions. So what this the point of recovery is, is to get you back onto that intended path. And it is my belief that the intended path is not to be a passive consumer that just cooperates as an as a unit within uh, within a system of sales just as a statistic we are engaged we must re be reborn unto the present so that we can become really what we are so that we can become what we are yeah so this idea of rebirth i'm going to kind of try to end then on a very positive note and go on then at the start of the book you <laughs> deal with the big impending d or the death question right mm. so Nothing more positive than death, right? Um, and as you point out you know, in the introduction, the reality of death individually, and yet it's certain, right, is something we don't like to talk about publicly. Um, and yet, of course, we know from Plato onwards, there's this idea that to philosophize is effectively to learn how to die. Mm. And it's to learn, and death might not be a physical death, it might be the death of a relationship or the death of, you know, an idea, the death of a person you once were, and you can kind of mourn this, right? But I don't, however, think this goes far enough. And I think, actually, we might need to take it a stage further. And there's a quote from David Bowie, when he puts, he says, religion is for people who fear hell, spirituality is for people who have been there. Now, I think with this in mind, I think the question your book kind of leaves me asking is, how can we learn to examine our lives in a way in which maybe, as you say, the addict, you know, has a certain experiential value, right? Because they have seen rock bottom, right? They can look at life, almost the example you give of the people who are deprived of light, right? In this emaciated state, they know what it means to look at life from the perspective of death, right? The almost already dead, right? Mm. So I think, you know, in terms of then your hopes for the book, you know, and looking at the future, how can we learn and maybe take the voices of these people much more seriously in terms of if we appreciate we're all kind of knee deep in the mud, right? And we know existence is tragic, but we know existence is also wonderful, right? So how can we maybe learn to go beyond this question of just simply learning how to die and look at life from the perspective of death? And become much more affirmative of what we actually have in this all too fleeting existence. Well, for me, Brad, it's become certain quite simplistic attitudinal shifts such as acceptance, gratitude, that I relinquish the idea that I'm not homeless in a gutter, smacked up off my nut because I'm somehow superior, but just because of a sort of a, a random set of coordinates and events have deposited me in a comfortable life and I'm really, really lucky and gracious. So I don't have a punitive attitude towards those people and I see them in like, you know, like sort of sometimes they're bright arseholes, but where I can as repositories potentially of great truths and, and, and important information. Uh, uh, one of the recovery uh, charities or organisations I do work with is BAC O'Connor. They run facilities in Burton-on-Trent in the United Kingdom and Stoke-on-Trent in, you know, in the Midlands, those areas. And I went to an event with them the other day and like just spoke to like service users, which means you know, in this case drug addicts and stuff, and like to talk through what they're doing in their program. The counsellors, a good number of the counsellors themselves, people in recovery, which I think is always very very helpful. And then afterwards, my 
wife was there and you know, sort of sat in there. They put on a lovely spread for us. God love them, you know, sort of some crisps and maybe something even as far flung as bruschetta, uh, but the kind of bruschetta one would get in Stoke-on-Trent. Yeah, ketchup may have been involved. <laughs> I'm only joking. It's perfectly nice. Anyway, there's this bloke uh, there who was a proper to glance at. Like, if you can imagine Shaggy from the cartoon Scooby-Doo, but he slept outside for a year and he's had a bloody good kick-in and no dental work. Like... This is what this guy looked like, thin, broken. And, uh, like, he's a drug addict, obviously. And, like, uh, like, he's sort of, he's come late and he's thin as fuck and he's, like, ransacking the buffet quite gently, you know, just thinking, oh, there's food there, I'll take that and sort of packing it up and stuff. And I goes, all right, mate. And I goes, oh, yeah, you're you, and you? And I'm like, yeah, 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 that's right. And, and... Like, because I'm like, when I'm among like other people that have got addiction issues, I feel like I don't have the obligation to try and act like I know what I'm doing or that I'm clever or that I'm in control. And I said something to him about feeling like, oh, yeah, like maybe he mentioned fame in some capacity. And I go, yeah, but I do get like, you know, I get nervous and I get frightened. He goes, what do you get frightened for? You're like, you're, you're Russell Brand. And like, who cares what other people think about you? If you, all that matters is people that know you. If they don't know you, fuck them. Right now, obviously, this is highly colloquial, but like uh, also for me is sort of profound and beautiful. And also the fact that he's even willing to take that role when meeting someone who's there sort of visiting and kind of like, I'm here as a patron of this organisation. Like that he like he's not like dumbfounded by the idea that I'm nervous and fearful. He accepts, oh, this guy is just the same as me. And there's an honour in that, you know, a real honour. And I think that awakened people not only realise it, but somehow can live it. I'm sort of realising it, but the challenge is living it, you know, like that. It's, it's, there is no distinction, there is no separation between him and me. We're all experiencing it. We're Like as the great Bill Hicks said, we're all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. And when I realise and live that, I'm not on my own anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. I don't have these obligations to prop up some avatar of myself that people might love or approve of or boost up or make much of to ameliorate some inner sense of worthlessness. There is a, the, it, with it, the salve is in the wound. The salve is in the wound. You know, when someone punishingly says, I'm worthless, I'm nothing, is it trying to reach the truth beneath that, that we are essentially not divided, separate from, and therefore are everything in the oneness? This is not about annihilation of the self as in the subjugation, in a, to, to refer to your work in a violent and destructive way, but the recognition that there is no need for fear and there is no need for desire because we are already one. We are already one. And that these things are not just philosophical tropes or empty mantras. They are things you can live by recognising that your own suffering can become a tool and the suffering of others can be an opportunity if you can just break out of the pre-existing and imposed paradigm that you are here to earn money, that your worth is established by what you've got. You know, and... Like Jason Siegel, the actor, I'm friends with him, and he went, all those things we defined ourselves by, like, you know, maybe there's a billboard up with your face on it, it's just the symptoms of other people making money out of you. It's not you. It's not you. And all that being flown around in a jet and fated over, like, that's not something to fear not doing. That's something to we've escaped. <laughs> because, gosh, yes, it's a, in its way it's, there is glamour, of course, glamour is a thing. People respond to it, pleasure and 
all of those things, but there's no real worth in it. Like I met that homeless guy once, and like, not no, he was not homeless. He was going to work with some homeless people. I met him in New Orleans, and he was off to go and sort of help out some homeless deal, you know, feeding homeless people. And he didn't recognise that was famous, that sweaty guy. And he said to me, um, "Oh, fame, money, all of that. That's the crumbs. I want to be at the banquet, the banquet." And Somehow we've been tricked into thinking, yeah, that's what religious people tell you, that, so you'll get out of the way and let them crack on with what they're doing. But this is not about subjugation, this is not about asceticism, this is not about denial, this is about finding the truth. And often the, the material world is preventing you from getting there. It's preventing you from getting there because we're caught up in the ornamentation mm. and, and we can't see that we're all part of one garment. Yeah. So then to kind of sum up, the one thing which I've take, really taken from the book um, is... Being alone and loneliness is the greatest killer. Right? It's the because it, not only does it result in people dying prematurely, but it can kill your sense of self-esteem and dignity. Right? And the two, I guess, messages which I want to maybe just you know reiterate that from what I take from the book is that if you are feeling alone, speak to someone, or if you're seeing somebody who's lonely, just give them a helping hand because they probably need you more than you, you, you realise. And I think that, to me, is the one thing which I wanted you know, to take from the book. And is that how, you know, do you have any final comments on that? Or do you... I try to remind myself when I'm talking to people like that I'm talking to another human being mm. and I try to tr talk to them with love and respect. And often, if the, if the opportunity is explicit, like, you know, if it's, I'm dealing with someone who's got drug and alcohol problems or some other problem that I identify with, that this is an opportunity to be loving. I forget this all the time. I'm a pretty long distance from perfection. But, like, I try to remember... You know, like, oh, God, you didn't really look at that person in the eyes. You didn't make a, an attempt to connect with them. Like, it's, we can come from a perspective of love. We don't need to only be coming from self-preservation. We're not all here competing for resources. It's, uh, yes, there was perhaps there's some evolutionary truth to that <laughs> millennia ago, but it's not true now. Mm. What well, We're here to help one another. And in deciding that, we can create mm. it. Well, it's a pleasure as always chatting to you, Russell, and, you know, thank you for the opportunity to get under the skin with you and turning the tables around. That was a bloody good wrap-up, Brad. Thank you so much for doing it. It's really lovely to talk to you. You're obviously a very beautiful person. Pleasure. And you're clever. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what I say, I could go on such a long rant, in, like where I'm referencing Zen Buddhism, bloody Jack Kerouac, consciousness itself, biochemistry, and like an interview go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like you, <laughs> like your mind's three seconds faster than mine, which I don't like, incidentally. Thank you, Brad. Pleasure. This show was sponsored by my new book, Recovery. Pre-order your copy by going to russellbrand.com. And if you like this show, please subscribe and review it in iTunes. Only five-star reviews, please. I'm very sensitive.